James, what's going on in your farm right now? Oh, hey, hey, Zen. What's 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 growing on? This is the point, isn't it? Well, you know, we are we are moving very close towards winter solstice, the shortest day of the year. So we're only fifteen days or so away at the, this stage. So really, not so much. But you know, I've got a bunch of veggies that are sitting there very happily overwintering, and I still haven't put my garlic in. So that's a bit concerning. But you know, as long as we can get the garlic in before solstice, I'll be very happy. Mm, yes, I know that the garlic take a while to grow, and also seedings as well. Yes. Mm. Oh, hey, James. Will you let you introduce yourself? Oh, sure. Okay. I guess. Um, well, with you and and John and I have known each other for some time, but um, I haven't met the audience yet. So, hi, everyone. Oh, I'm thanks. For, thanks for mentioning my name, by the way. Hi, Zed. I'm here too. Oh, sorry, John. I forget. <laughs> <laughs> Great co-host. Loving this. Just waiting, waiting, waiting for my introduction. You guys are just talking gardening. Anyway. <laughs> well, I'm here in sunny southern Tasmania at, at my farm, Longley Organic Farm. And uh, we have been producing vegetables for lots of families and, um, and chefs through the year. And we've, we finished uh, our food production about four or five weeks ago. So um, now it's time to plan for next year and um, uh, look at our soil again and, and make sure um, and, and rest a little bit and make sure that uh, we've got a good plan for next year. Mm. Yes, I think that is difference between the uh, soil in the winter and also in the summer as well as I think the audience from different from uh, different countries in different uh like different part of the earth. So uh, could you like to tell a bit about the soil, James? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a very broad question, isn't it? I, I, might, I might, you know, um, add that, if, you know, even in Australia now, um, a lot of the growers in, in the northern part of Australia, they'll be in the middle of their season right now. You know, some of these, some of these guys are, are planting out crops that we planted out, you know, Eight months ago, so so really, even in Australia, we have that uh, really broad range of temperature zones and 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 soil types as well. So um, you know the the soil thing that's that's a big that's a very big question because soils change everywhere, and along with the temperatures and the way that we need to deal with them is really different depending on on where we are. So I I, I can very you know happily talk about my soils, but it might be tricky talking about other people's soils. But it's, it's a really good thing for us to all think about is the soils because that's that's where all the life force is, of course, for for the for what it is that we do, and that's where we um, where we reconnect, I guess. Um, mm. I've heard you say before, James, the soil is the stomach of the plant. That's that's right. The soil is the stomach of the plant, and um, you know, and it's and a healthy soil will be thriving with um, many different types of beneficial bacteria and fungi 
um, just like in our stomachs or in our guts. So, so really this is very important for me as an organic farmer um, and as an, a no-till farmer, so that's something we can talk about later as well, um, that, that we don't disturb, not only do we not disturb that soil, but we, we encourage the, um, all, all of that beneficial life force in the soil to, to constantly improve uh, over time um, in the short term and in the long term, you know. So, so that, as, a, as a farmer, that's, that's, I see that as my primary job. So James, for the uh, some uh, starters who just like start their garden or start their uh, veggies patch or their farm, how do we realize that the soil is not healthy enough, or how does the soil is healthy enough? Like, do we uh, recognize them from the from the from the surface sur- 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 of the soil, or we have to test it with something? Yeah. So, um, you know, I guess. A lot of people, they'll, you know, I remember when I was about four years old or maybe five years old and I decided that I wanted to grow something. So I put some things into this very sandy soil in Western Australia and um, uh, not a lot happened. So and I thought, oh, why won't my plants grow? And then someone said, oh, maybe you, must, maybe you need to add some compost or, or something like this, you know. So I think often the, the first point is – People really want to participate in this, you know, natural um, uh, life force, you know. So, so they'll they will experiment and then work out that they they need something, you know. And there's a bunch of ways that people go can then go about that. They could go to their garden center and and uh, find a fertilizer and uh, you know and some compost and mix that in with their soil and and probably grow something, um, you know, quite quite adequately. Um, but that's not going to necessarily uh, optimize their soil health. So optimizing the soil health is obviously a different uh, different question. And there, I mean, there are some there are some clever ways of doing that without uh, needing to go and get soil analyzed. Um, although I tend to go and get my soil analyzed instead. So so that's a, a, a quicker way for me to deal with that. You know, but um. If it, it depends on what scale people are growing. If they're just growing in their backyard, maybe they, you know, maybe the the idea of getting their soil analysed is too is too tricky for them. Although, you know, there are some good services in Australia now for do, for doing that, at fairly low prices. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I mean, if, if we can, I don't know, if we can understand this, our soils, we then we then we can take control of of promoting soil health better. And that's a, a wonderful thing to do to know that you can um, really uh, be aware of what is what is happening in your soil and what is happening with your food, and and get the most nutrient dense food possible for yourself and your family and loved ones. James, you talked about getting soil analysed. If a person wants to do it themselves, obviously, apart from visually and putting their finger in to say it's wet or dry. Are there any other some really other basic tests that a backyarder can do, just to try and check the health of their soil? There, there is, but um, uh, and I've been told some great ways of going about it. But um, I, what I'll do is I'll find that information out and I'll get back to you for our next podcast, so that we have some uh, some some fun, easy ways of of looking into uh, soil health that doesn't require money being spent on 
on soil tests. I think it's very, very important. Yeah. We do look at things like uh, simple things like um, uh, a water holding capacity or um, uh, the, the tilth of the soil, you know, and you do, there are simple things that you can do like um, just get some of the soil in your hand and clench it and really when you release it, you want it to be a little bit sticky but still fall apart. You know, if it's just too sandy, then then uh, you know it's not going to hold on to nutrients. It's not going to hold on to um, water and this sort of thing. And if it's too clay, the other the other extreme, um, uh, then you might have problems with um, your plants accessing uh, the the nutrients that they need to need to access. So so there's ways of you know if it's too clay, then maybe you can add some gypsum. Um, which has a good amount of calcium in it, but it's not going to increase your pH. Um, or if it's too too sandy, you know, you need to get a. You probably want to get a bunch of things in it. In fact, one thing that you can do if if it's too sandy to get uh, your soil to hold on to nutrient is you can add um, you can add uh, a bit of clay, and you can do that by mixing clay in water um, and making a slurry, and then you can put a mop into the slurry. And just spray it onto the um, onto the soil, and mix it in, and that that'll increase uh, your soil's ability to hold on to nutrient, and you know, and and a few other things. And you'd probably then want to add some compost and and some some fertilizer, of course, as well. Mm. Anyway, that's lovely that you make an offer to dig into this a little bit further when you've got time, and we'll put up this information onto our website, which is what's growing on podcast.com. Hey, John, what, what's growing on? Mate, thank you for asking. Uh, while we're talking dirty talk about soil, what's growing on for me is straw bale oh, growing. fantastic, fantastic. Straw bale garden. Mate, so you could talk about your dirt, um, but for me I wanted to try something different and for, it's as simple as getting a straw bale that's been tied nice and tightly it is all about lying it on its side and the key factor is treated. When I say treated, I've been using what's called blood and bone. I put that on every second day and watering it every day so the colour of the, the bale starts to discolour, become a blacky. Obviously, we're talking it starts to decompose. And I'm now growing broccoli, sprouts. I'm doing cauliflower. I'm doing kale. I'm doing lettuce, and it's really fun. Uh, I live in a unit. I don't have much dirt as you guys do, um, but boy, it's working. I think there. I think uh, straw straw bales are a fantastic idea, um, and also for uh, for growing worms. Have you got Have you got worms in your straw bale? No, but I'm going to see a doctor. That <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a medical question. <laughs> Uh, no, mate, I do not have um, worms. I, uh, but it's so good point. I've, I, I do have a worm farm, and I love my worm wee, which I definitely pour on the rest of the garden. But what you're saying is, you think a worm is going to survive in a bale of straw? Yes, I do, absolutely. So I had, I had a, um, uh, a gentleman came down to my farm uh, maybe about six months ago, and he's started it. A business selling straw bales to people that you know live in houses that of flats that might not have access to land, and the business is doing really well. 
he did a lot of experimentation for a number of years with his straw bales. And um, you'd see he, and he found that they're great for tapping off wormweed. And uh, okay. he, he's getting two years out of a straw bale. Is he really? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, and a lot of production. So, um, this guy's in Tasmania? Yes, he is. He's Southern, Southern Tasmanian. Okay. I'll yeah. have to try to find his link. So, yeah. So, um, uh, and so he sells them with the worms in them, uh, ready to go. They're a very clever uh, design. And, um, you know, and again, this is, you know, so when he has the worms in there, really he's working with um, all that same biota that we're talking about in the soil, you know, and, and compost, you know, and it's, it's really part of that composting uh, situation, isn't it? You know, so um, really it's, it's about bringing in part of a thriving uh, ecological system into a small block the size of a straw bale. And that's just a wonderful thing. That's really nice. And is it a straw? A straw is the food for the worms as well. Do they eat them? Yeah. So as the straw is decomposing, they they will utilize that, and they also utilize the food that you put into the um, in, into the straw bale. So so they're converting they're converting food that's there, and then that becomes available for the for the for the roots of the plants. You know, worms worms breathe through uh, a mucus that's on the outside of their skin, and that's covered in beneficial bacteria. So they actually breed up the beneficial bacteria that's converting nutrient in the soil. Uh, so if you can combine uh, composting worms or earthworms into um, any any gardening situation uh, where you're using natural food sources, uh, they will make they will make that available for the plant. you'll you'll end up with a, a better plant nutrient. And so, so then the person that consumes the, the food is going to get the best possible uh, nutrient outcome from the food. Mm, it's all connected. It's all connected. That's right. Mm. And that you know, and that's a good reason to remember that you know we're so much better off using natural food sources than than um, artificial fertilizers always, because then the plants get to do what they want to do naturally. You know, they they build up better sugars, better immunity, so they become less diseased. And, and then, of course, that immunity and the processes that happen in that make for a better nutrition uh, that's then handed on to the end, end consumer. Yes. So it's so, a win-win. Yeah. Yes, it's win-win-win. Yep. <laughs> yes, I highly recommend to buy, to buy the natural food rather than the supermarket. <laughs> that's my opinion. <laughs> that's, that's my opinion too. Yeah, Zen. Question for you, what's growing on? I heard a story the other day that you saw some lovely organic apples. Oh, yes. And you got really excited. What do you mean you get excited when you look at the organic apple? How does an apple excite you? Uh, actually, I have been to the uh, Farmgate Market in Hobart yesterday. Nice. Um, so, yeah, that was really nice because I, uh, even though during the uh, pandemic time, I still can access to the farmer market that was so excited already. And then when I saw a store that's selling uh, organic apples from, uh, I can't remember the place, but from uh, quite close to the Huon Valley. And then I told her, I told the storeholder that, oh my God, I saw the organic apple. I feel so excited already. Every time when I saw the organic apple, just like, okay, I, I already know that they taste so different compared to the apples that I bought from the supermarket. 
Because I, what I tasted I was that from the supermarket, I can taste the bitter in the in the apples because of the uh, I think the chemical. And um, but when I have the apples that is fully organic, I just taste the orga- uh, to taste the fresh of the apples and also its original taste as well. So I feel so excited. My senses was opened fully yesterday. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> You're crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So the farm, yeah, and the farm gate market is re- really such a wonderful thing to uh, to for our community, for everyone. And it's really amazing in the last uh, few years to see so much development in farm gate markets around Australia. Um, I think this is a really positive realisation by the by the general community um, about knowing who their growers are, knowing where the food comes from um, and being able to support uh, small growers and, and support local farmers. So... You know, we can't do any better than than having in-season, locally produced food with low food miles, um, and it really reinforces our community uh, in so many different ways uh, that it's just it's such an important thing to to get out to farm gate markets, you know, and, and support them. I don't think it's something that's been reinvented because what I'm saying at a global level there's always been different small markets around the world uh, where people have been proud to sell and, and distribute in a smaller context compared to a large supermarket. So um, it's now that we've just given it a nice name around farmer's market. That's what we call it in Victoria. Uh, but overall, we've, you know, the world has been doing this for a long time, hasn't it? That's That's right. And it's really a time to get back to those traditional values, which are, which are ground in the in the in the community, and you know, and really find the supports that that that, that they offer. I, I think you know, and people have realised a lot of this lately with the fact that you know sometimes supermarket shelves can't guarantee that they'll be there when you need them, and. Uh, and the fact that we don't really know where our food comes from, it, on, a, on from the supermarket, you know, there's no there's no connection between the the grower and and the consumer, you know. So, so it's been a long time that supermarkets have really dominated uh, the provision of of what feeds our families, and we we forget the the all of the community benefits that that come from from provide you know from providing. A market for locals to sell their their produce. So, when we reinvigor, you know, this local um, community production, we're really reinvigorating a much greater concept, in, you know, of of uh, community interconnectedness. So, I think it's just really wonderful, wonderful that that farm gate markets have taken off again so strongly in the last couple of years in Australia, and we're seeing that move back to towards that. No, I think that will continue. I don't think it's a fad by any chance. I think, you know, we're we're just reconnecting. You know, and of course it's you know, in a lot of countries around the world that never really changed that much. And I, I guess even if you go to say, you know, a country like France, you you would still have you know, that's never changed. That you know, they they understand that small farm concept very well and um and thrive on it, you know. So so it's a it's a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. 
And I think particularly, especially after this uh, pandemic time, I think more people are growing their own veggies and possibly uh, more farm game markets or farmer markets will be open after this as well, Reagan? Yes, I thought, you know, um, the farm gate markets were really, uh, really coming into their own in the last couple of years in Australia. And, uh, you know, the fact that they have been established um, during this time has been a benefit for the community because they're able to be outdoors, you know, the consumers are able to be outdoors and much better distance themselves, you know, and take advantage of, of you know, buying produce in the fresh air Supporting the local community, it's you know it's it's a much more natural way of going of going about um, providing for your family. So so um, you know I think these things tie very well together. James, off air we were talking about a bit of a surge in popularity around people wanting to uh, get a, a, the right equipment for their backyard gardens, and we know that you do that. Uh, you do so many things in the in nature and gardening, but do you want to talk a bit more about what's happened the last few months about inquiries from people in the backyards who really have uh, seen the value and really want to get into it? As far as what types of things are they buying from you? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, so we 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 sell equipment for um, for small market farmers, but also for backyard growers. All the equipment that we sell is based used for chemical free farming or growing so it has application in you know in backyards as much as it does for um uh, small production farms but of interest you know we sell things like uh, soil blockers and soil blockers you know they're like a cookie cutter you you um therefore you make like um you use your own so rather than using potting mix the concept is you use your own soil and then you use soil blockers uh you, you push them into the soil and they make these soil blocks, so you don't need to use pots. And the, they were actually designed by an American uh, grower called Elliot Coleman, who was just, um, this man developed so, so much beneficial tools and resources for, for small organic growers. He's, he's really the, the father of uh, uh, small market farming. And so he, one of his developments is his soil blockers. And, you, you know, you can... So the concept is if you're growing in, into natural soil and then you trans into your own soil and then you're transplanting that back into your own soil, there isn't the the plant can only benefit. It's not going from one soil type into another, and you're you're not using any um, pots because the the soil cube that you grow into doesn't have a container once it's come out of the soil blocker. Um, it sits in the tray. There's no edges to the block, so the roots can grow through the blocks, you never end up getting root-bound roots. And the, the general concept is you end up with a much better, a much healthier seedling. So we've seen um, sales in those. Uh, I've been selling them for, for a few years, but in the last four months, I've seen sales of those uh, go up or six-fold. So a lot of people are starting to take up these uh, this equipment that was always, always there. They're starting to realise. I think I think people were aware of of this stuff, and they've just decided that now's the time to to have a go at using the stuff themselves. So we've seen a lot a lot of growth in sales in with soil blockers and with styropos. Uh, so styropos are another item that we sell that are like a they're, they're for weed management, so that so that um, people can uh, 
they don't need to, you know, so it's all for chemical-free gardening. So the the wheel, uh, sorry, the styropos, the concept there is they don't dig deep, so it's a no-till situation. So that they're not just um, damaging any of the um, the microbes in the soil, and they're just they're just cutting baby weeds as they come up. They're severing the 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 single root of the baby weed, and they, so they end up with re- retaining a not really nice, clean um, growing area. James, this they sound amazing. And no doubt you'd have no problems with uh, putting some more information on the What's Growing On podcast website because I'm sure our listeners would like to learn more about those. Yeah, it'd be my pleasure. Can I just go back to the soil cutter, uh, soil blocker, I should say. Now, you described it as a cookie cutter. Now, a cookie cutter is basically when you make biscuits, you put a round piece of something over your dough and you've got the same shape. That's right. I'm sorry, but I need a bit more descriptive about the soil blocker. Are we talking about a metal frame that is hammered into the dirt? Yes, we are. Yes, we are. So okay. there, there is a bunch of different ones. The standard one that people use is a, there's a four-cell a four or a five-cell soil blocker. And they, they're they about an inch and a half. So what's that? About three or four centimetres by three or four centimetres by three or four centimetres. So they make a cube of soil. And then there's a little dibble at the top of this of the soil blocker that makes a little impression in the top of the soil. So really, you know, it's make, like making mud pies, but they're shaped like a cube with a little impression in the top. But there's actually there's actually a bunch of them. So you can get these tiny ones that are about a centimetre uh, cubed, but there's 20 in that. So you can push this into the soil and all of a sudden you've got these 20 little, little starter blocks and then you could drop your seed into those and then when they – have taken off and the roots are starting to grow into that cubic centimetre, you can then use the next size up, which would be a four-cell blocker, uh, and then that'll that, – so that little one cube centimetre will fit into the top of that. And then you can go from that into a single-cell blocker, which is about uh, 10 centimetres by 10 centimetres by 10 centimetres. And so you can end up with quite a, a well-developed – uh, seedling. So you would use, yeah, the larger ones you would use for things like tomatoes or cucumbers because we want a fairly large plant before we transplant it. So, so or, or a fairly well developed plant. So that, that would happen over about a seven week period, I would guess. And then we would transplant the, the tomato or the, or the cucumber. Um, and then, you know, uh, the, but the main ones that people use would be the, the four or five cell blockers, which is the, the medium size. So that's, you know, 30. Uh, millimeters or three centimeters cubed, and that you know that you could use those for lettuces or you know medium-sized plants that you're going to, you know, even a cabbage or um, broccoli or something like that. So they're they're a wonderful device. Yeah, I guess I don't know about using, but what I'm excited about is if you've got the right equipment and you're not going out to go and buy potting mix all the time, you can utilize your existing soil. That's a fantastic uh, initiative. Yes. Yes, and if, if if we yes, and if we have um, you know, if if we're really focusing on our soil and the life in our soil, then it's just it's as a backyard grower, it's just the most wonderful thing to do, to you know keep keep that closed loop. So you really you're not bringing in plastics from outside. You're you're using the soil that's there because you know what's in it because you've put so much love into it, and um, you're not bringing in an unknown from outside. So. I really, I think it's just a wonderful thing to do. Fun, funnily enough, we're we are almost out of those soil blockers, and I bring them in from the United States, and the United States is is out of them. You know, they because there has just been such a rush on these things in the, in the last 
few months that the, there's only one company that makes them and um, they haven't been able to keep up with demand. Although, you know, they've been available for many years. Mm. And uh, I have heard that actually the popping mix doesn't really have much nutrition in it as well, right, James? Oh, that's the Tasmanian poppy mix? Mm. Yeah, so um, it can be used as, as a, you know, it's a, it's a compost. So, you know, um, compost, that's, that, you know, that's a whole very vexed um, subject, I guess, because um, it's quite hard to find decent compost. I think the best way to get a decent compost is to, is to make it yourself. Mm. But, you know, composts add uh, life to our soil because they, because they have their basis for microbial life. But they aren't in themselves high in in a lot of um, micronutrients, or, or um, you know, and they use nitrogen to break down. So, so generally, you need to add a nitrogen source, probably a calcium source, and a few other few other things that the compost will be lacking. So they're just they're one very important part of of what we do. Now I know there's poppy a poppy mix available in ta- in Tasmania. I don't think it would be available anywhere else in Australia. But it's it's okay to use as a compost base. But you just need to remember that it's not a it's not a um, a complete food source for your, for your plants. Yeah, I love this conversation, Zan and James. It's so much to learn about. Um, oh yeah, uh, so much stuff. But it's it's really cool how we're just having a casual chat because yeah. what's half an hour gone already. It's gone fast. Yeah. You know, um, uh, composted chicken manure I find is is a pretty good thing uh, for people that that might be using a slightly larger. Um, garden area if they if they want a uh, a relatively cheap compost if they if they have if they know somewhere in their community where there's uh, pastured chickens um, that might have compost for sale there that's a really good source of of you know a high nitrogen based compost not always easiest to find but if you can it can be a good cheap source for for that for that nitrogen base another thing that we use in Tasmania of course is um, the Tasmanian canola, canola mill that would, that um, is produced by the same company that produces the the um, the poppy mix. The canola is always available, but it's a little bit more expensive. But canola is a, a really wonderful thing if you can get it not Roundup ready. So if it's most of the canola on the mainland, unfortunately, is Roundup ready, which means uh, that they're using it with um, glyphosate. So so I try to stay away from them. They're not allowed to use. They, they don't do that in Tasmania. So because it has a GMO status, so so the canola meal down here is wonderful to use as a slow release um, form of nitrogen. So we find blood and bone has a, a, a two week half life, and canola meal tends to have a six week half life. So we can use that really as, as a slow release form of um, of nitrogen. In and we can add it with our compost just before we add it to the beds, or we can add it straight to our beds as as like a side dressing. And when we do that, we add about 150 mils per square meter and uh, mix it in with, with the compost and, the, and that topsoil. Sounds good. As you know, Zen, you've, one of my jobs was to be the time police, <laughs> which is really a tough gig because I'm loving all this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to close. I'll throw over to you to close, but I just wanted to, from my perspective, thank you, James, for coming on to the probably the you know, very early What's Growing On podcast episodes and we are delighted that you are going to be hopefully a regular guest. 
Yes. Uh, pending your availability, because we understand you are super busy, but the information you've given us is great, and we will definitely uh, have those links up on our website. Reminder again, their website is www.whatsgrowingonpodcast.com. We've also got Instagram, we've got photos. So that's all good. Over to you, Zen. Oh, yes. And hopefully uh, we will hear more information and storytelling from James next time as well. Fantastic, guys. You know, I, I think it's really wonderful to know what's growing on. <laughs> it is. Actually, because I'm in charge of time, I want to throw another question, just a quick one. Um, James, we've, there are so many traditional organic vegetables that are growing, you know, your tomatoes, your carrots. Can you share with the world, and even if focusing on Tasmania, if people want to do something a bit different or try something a bit unusual, are there any trends? When I say trends, just non-traditional the people would like to say, I want to have a go at this because I've, I've done the tomatoes, I've done the carrots, I've done all this. What, what, what's a challenge you could throw out to anybody to have a try at this? You know, I think one thing, one thing that often interests people is, is trying to grow something that doesn't normally grow in their environment. So it's a bit harder for them to, to get hold of. So that, that might be something that grows in a, in a different temperature, uh, temperate zone. For example... We can't grow limes outdoors in Tasmania because it's too cold, but I am. In fact, uh, right now I have a lime tree covered in limes and they're super juicy, really nice quality limes, but it's taken me 10 years of messing around to get that lime tree to finally start producing, but it was worth it. Um, so, you know, and that that was uh, a result of getting the roots to get used to our temperature, which meant three years in a pot, making sure it was in the right size pot, uh, and then exposing it to, you know, our, our very cold, well, I mean, well, they're not globally, they're not that cold, but our cold winters and very frosty conditions. And finally, it's taken off. This year, it's, it's decided that it's happy enough and it's started putting out uh, copious amounts of, of, of limes, you know. So, it, and it could be quite the opposite in, in uh, more of a tropical zone. Someone might want to grow a vegetable that needs, uh, you know, dry weather or something like this. And I think if we, you know, experiment and fail, then we learn, you know, and that's that's where our success is, is through um, watching, you know, watching the mistakes that happen and then just thinking, okay, if I try, if I, maybe if I try some little change, we can get these things to work, you know. So it's always fun to be able to um, share an oddity with your friends that you've managed to to create. You know, I think I think it's a wonderful thing to do. Does that answer your question, John? Sure does. Mm, I feel so excited for the other veggies growing in the winter here as well. Yeah, so are you talking about overwintering veggies, Zen? Yes, yes, because uh, it's my first time to um, growing veggies in Tasmania. So especially, I think from the weather, like uh, sometimes it's really chill here. So I think mm, if they can go really well, that will be awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's that's right, that's right. So I've got some lovely cabbages coming up at the moment, which we're going to be sharing with some local chefs soon. You know, and we we I still I'm still preparing seedlings and putting seedlings in now. 
So, you know, there's a lot of um, good stuff that we can put in in the winter and then it, it'll just um, stay there fairly dormant until the spring. And then so in early spring, hopefully we'll have a cornucopia of really great food to start our year going, you know, that'll give us an extra crop for, for our year's production. Yes, it sounds exciting. I'm happy to call it a wrap. I think we need to remind everybody about our email address, share at whatsgrowingonpodcast.com. Please don't hesitate to send any questions that you might have. Um, And it's all about sharing and experimenting. A big thank you again, James, for um, being part of this conversation and Zen Zen. And uh, we'll see everybody in the garden. What's growing on? See you soon, guys. See you, James. Thank you so much. Thank you, Zen. Thank you, John. Ooh, la, la, la. Ooh, la, la, la. What's growing on?